and welcome to this week's episode of Ireland Creates, the podcast about Irish storytellers. I'm your host, Ashling O'Rourke. I'm a communications coach and lecturer in media. I hope you're having a great week. If you're listening to this from outside of this lovely Emerald Isle, things have finally started opening up again and hope abounds. I went into the hairdressers during the week and I was completely taken aback by just how nice it was to hear banter and laughter and music. I really do hope that we're on the road to recovery once again. On this episode, we hear from our first journalist to join us on Ireland Creates, apart from myself, of course, an award-winning courts correspondent and Galway native and a former colleague of mine. I hope you enjoy hearing his story. My name is Frank Rainey and I am a courts correspondent for News Talk and Today FM and I am also the author of Crowded House, um, which is a book about the murder of Patricia O'Connor in June of 2017. Well, Frank Graney, thank you so much for joining us on this week's episode of Ireland Creates, the podcast all about storytelling across all genres. Frank, thanks for taking time out. People will know you. They might not know the name, but they'll definitely know the voice. Tell us first, how did you find yourself getting interested in journalism, never mind the courts to begin with? Um, Well, my background was actually in the legal field. So when I left school, I studied corporate law in NUI Galway and I had no desire at the time to become a journalist, but I always did have a love for writing Um, always had a love for storytelling. And funnily enough, one of the things that really appealed to me um, during my legal studies was actually the stories contained within the case studies that we were studying. These were all works of fiction and they were designed, I suppose, to assist um, people studying uh, law to understand the legal principles. So, you know, in exam settings, you will be presented with a case study and you will be asked to identify the various legal principles involved therein and draw conclusions and raise arguments about them. And, you know, I was always more interested in the stories um, and wondering how people found themselves in these situations, what happened to them afterwards. And and again, these were works of fiction, so it was quite ridiculous to even have those thoughts. But I realised maybe halfway through that course that um, the career path that I had chosen wasn't the one that I wanted to pursue. Um, I still saw the sense that such a young age to actually see it through. And I did complete my my undergraduate degree in NUI Galway. And after that, then I went traveling. Um, You know, I spent a couple of years traveling to, I suppose, see a bit of the world and also to hopefully get some inspiration as to what I wanted to do with the rest of my life. And I did actually in, in Cambodia during my travels, I kept a journal with me. I was documenting my travels. You know, I would record who I was speaking to, places I'd visit. And it's something that I do actually look back on all these years later, because it's amazing how much you you forget over the years. But um, I was fascinated by by people's stories. Cambodia in particular has a very special place in my heart. You know, I'm almost embarrassed to say that I had never heard of the Khmer Rouge. I'd never heard of the killing fields and the atrocities that happened in Cambodia in the 1970s. And I became obsessed by it and I wrote extensively about it. And when I came home to Ireland, then I was 
determined that I wanted to become a journalist. I had that light bulb moment while I was while I was traveling um, and I came home with uh, this burning desire to be uh, a journalist, bringing stories from Cambodia to the people of Ireland. And I was sending away articles that I'd written about my travels and nobody was picking them up. And I applied for the master's um, a program in NUI Galway, the master's in journalism, and I was unsuccessful. Um, it was a very competitive course at the time, only 16 places and a lot of interest in in those places. And while I was able to sit across from the course director and say that this is what I want to do with the rest of my life and I'm very passionate about it, I didn't have the experience uh, to follow it up. Um, so what I did then for the next 12 months until the application process began again was I offered my services for free to the local newspaper, the Connacht Tribune. Um, I'm from Galway. That would have been my local newspaper. And my first job in the world of journalism was writing the local news uh, from my hometown of Barna, which is um, just outside Galway City. And that's a job that I actually still do to this day, you know, um, for lots of reasons, uh, nostalgia and, and sentimental values. But also it's a really good way of, of keeping in touch with what's happening in my local community back home. I'm living in Dublin now 10 years. I did a diploma course, an evening course in journalism. And, and then I was successful at the second time of asking um, when they reopened the application process, I applied for the masters and and thankfully I was successful. But um, it was funny because, you know, the whole reason I applied for that course was because I wanted to be a writer. Um, I wanted to work for a newspaper, but very quickly, um, as soon as I was introduced to broadcast and radio, and as soon as I set foot in the studio in that journalism suite in, in NUI Galway all those years ago, I knew that that was the medium for me. How did you find that first year? Like, as you said, that you had to offer your skills up for free to get that experience. It's something that every journalist in the country has to do. And I know people have very strong opinions on it, but it seems to be the only way even still to get your foot in the door is to do that internship, the work placement, work experience, whatever you want to call it. Um, And it can be quite tough when you're starting out and you're young and maybe naive as to what a journalist's job actually is. How did you, what was your experience of it? It's funny you should ask um, because something that has always stuck with me over the years is is something John Cunningham, one of my lecturers in in that master's programme, he's since passed away, a very nice man and a former editor of of the Connacht Tribune, a real old school hack. You know, he had a certain way of of finding a story and he had his little notebook full of contacts and um, he was a great storyteller himself and a brilliant journalist. And he said to us, and and it's always stuck to me, two pieces of advice that he gave to us was... um, Um, Firstly, you should never undervalue yourself. So while you should, I think, um, you know, seek to prove yourself before somebody puts a value on it, you should never undervalue yourself. So while I did um, some work for free initially, you know, very quickly I was putting a price on on that work because it did have a value, clearly, if it was being published. And in fairness, the Connacht Tribune, they did pay me um, week to week, you know, and and that's probably one of the hardest things about being a freelancer is firstly getting the work and then getting paid for it. But the Connacht Tribune, in fairness, were very good to me um, uh, over the years. Another piece of advice that John Cunningham gave me as a a student of of journalism was um, he he actually questioned uh, the title of the course and because he felt that you can't study how to be a journalist, you know, you can be taught how to be a reporter. But in his opinion, and I, I have to agree with him, you earn the right to be a journalist because 
the difference in his mind was that, you know, to be a journalist means that people value your opinions. Mm. Um, and it's something that you earn over the years. And, you know, you develop um, a level of trust with with readers or listeners or viewers, as as the case may be. And I think what we've seen over the, the past 12 months or so is the importance of those mainstream journalists, um, because, you know, plenty of people can go out there with a phone or a recorder. It's easier than ever to report on, on stories. But you can see over the past 12 months, people are really um, turning back to the, the mainstream journalists, you know, the people that they see um, on their TV screens every day or hearing their radio bulletins every hour or, you know, the people whose byline they're looking at every day because because they trust them. And journalism is is a vocation of, of sorts. Um, I remember uh, another um Another person who hugely influenced my career at an early stage is uh, a, a woman called Bernini Lahertha. And she was working at the time with the Connacht Tribune and, and she's also done an awful lot of TV work over the years. And I remember going in to do this evening uh, course after I was unsuccessful at the first time of asking uh, in getting into NUI Galway's master's programme. And uh, we had a meet and greet the very first evening. And Bernie said, and I've kept in touch with Bernie over the years and I often say it to her. Um, she said, to those gathered for that first day. She said, for all of you who are here in pursuit of fame and fortune, she said, there's the door. Because she said, this isn't, this isn't that career. I don't know what you're seeing in the movies, but if you're just looking to get on TV for the sake of getting on TV, th that's not what this is about. She said, and she was right, yeah. you know, that the, the riches will come. But she said this will be a very rewarding career in so many other ways. And 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 she's dead right. You know, over the years, I have covered some fascinating stories. I've met some incredibly brave and interesting people. And it has certainly been a very fulfilling course. And I know I've gone back over the years um, to speak to journalism classes and and law students in various universities across the country, including NUI Galway. And it's funny that the first question you're always asked when they open it up to a Q&A is, how do I get a job? How do I get a job? How do I get a job? My path to getting full time employment in this business was a long and tough one. And you have to be prepared to knock on a lot of doors, you know, to get turned down an awful lot, to not earn an awful lot of money, to work your ass off, you know, um, for years. You know, in my case, I was freelancing for five years. Mm -hmm. And as you well know, Ashleen, that's that's a tough pursuit. And you have to really, really want it if you're going to stick it out for that long. You know, sleeping in my car, covering stories, driving all across the country and spending all my money as a freelancer on fuel and tolls, you know, not earning a living for a long time out of it. And the uncertainty of not knowing from one end of the month to the next, if you're going to have any work, chasing invoices, you know, it's not it's not an easy profession to get um, a foot on the ladder in. It's but not. And you I get, like, you'd even see like even from a car insurance perspective, if you are working mm -hmm. as a journalist that uses your car as part of your job. Now, lots of journalists don't need the car, so it doesn't affect everybody. But it is one of those jobs that you get penalised for because, like you said, we do crazy hours. We travel across the country. And I know in my case, when I was, um, I used to do shifts between uh, KCLR 96 FM and Dublin's 98, as it was at the time. It's now 98 FM. And there was many times where I genuinely fell asleep at the wheel. And it terrified the living daylights out of me. And it's yeah. not an easy gig. And it's not for the faint hearted. Uh, absolutely. It's, 
Maybe it was once upon a time, but certainly for me, I mean, I finished my master's at the height of the recession, you know, maybe once upon a time. And anecdotally, you do hear that there was almost a conveyor belt of students coming out of the journalism schools straight into newsrooms. Yeah. You know, it's it's like, you know, if you look at other professions, you know, if, if you study um, medicine, for example, you know, does a job uh, at the other side for you automatically. That's not the case when it comes to journalism. If you get a job straight off the bat coming out of a journalism course, um, certainly when I did back in, you know, like I said, at the height of the recession, you know, you were very, very lucky. At the time, people were losing their jobs in newsrooms left, right and centre. And those that had jobs in newsrooms were holding on to them for dear life. Mm -hmm. So to actually try and carve out um, a livelihood in that space, you know, at the height of uh, an economic recession, was very difficult. So sharing those stories, and, I, and I, I don't share these stories with students to frighten them off. The point that I'm always trying to make is you need to really want it, you know, to make it, you need to really want it. And if you do, you will make it. You know, if you work hard and you're good enough, you will make it. And it is a fantastic career, you know, once once you get up, uh, get a leg up on, on that ladder. But it's not a glamorous one, you know, <laughs> and people might have that misconception. And yeah. certainly there are certain aspects of, of journalism that might be considered more glam than others, but it's a bloody hard job. And look, there are the nights out and the, you know, the radio awards once a year where everybody gets dressed up in their gunas and tuxes and it's lovely. But there's also chips from the local takeout at midnight at the desk because you're still working on that story that just came in at half past 11 and now all of a sudden you're doing a really late night. So, yeah, it, it can be a tough old slog. You mentioned that you went into journalism, Frank, with this interest and this grow for writing. But that once you were interested, once you were introduced to broadcasting, that a fire was lit. Now, we love radio in this country in particular. We I think we listen to more radio per head of population in Ireland than any other country in the world. What was it about broadcasting that, you know, lit up your light bulb? It was an instant love affair. It really was. And I suppose I suppose at the time, you know, it wasn't that accessible. Like nowadays you look at social media and things like TikTok and YouTube channels and, and whatnot. And, you know, everybody could be a broadcaster. Podcasting is huge at the moment and all you need is a, a microphone and a laptop and, you know, a story to tell. Um, so at the time, I suppose I, I just had never experienced um, anything in, in the broadcast world, really. Um, and then when I went into, they they, they have um, a built-in studio in the journalism suite in NUA Galway. It was just the immediacy of it, you know, sitting down in front of somebody with a microphone and, and, and just, you know, asking them to tell you their story. I also love the buzz of like a breaking news story. Do you know, there's nothing more exciting mm. than working in broadcast when a news story breaks. It's it's a different animal to newspapers and newspapers have become a little bit more immediate. But breaking into a news program to give a verdict from the Belfast rape trial and, and knowing knowing that, you know, the whole country is waiting on the outcome of that story and you're about to deliver it. You know, the adrenaline, um, the rush, the 
sense of privilege. You know, you're standing at the forefront of some of the most historic stories um, in the history of, of the state. And and that's that's a privilege and a responsibility that that I don't take lightly, that my colleagues don't take lightly. And it's just sometimes and I'm, I'm sure I'm sure you'll agree, Ashley, that sometimes the uninitiated, you know, you'll, you'll point a live microphone in their faces and it's almost like pointing a loaded shotgun, you know. <laughs> yes. And and it's 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 finding the skill as a broadcaster, as an interviewer to make people forget about the microphone. Um, do you know, like there are broadcasters who I would have admired down through the years, you know, Gay Byrne being one of them, um, you know, like truly pioneer, pioneered like modern day broadcasting in Ireland. And he had that ability to have a guest share, you know, the most intimate details of their life um, on his show live to the nation. And like what an incredible skill um, to have. And it's so subtle. You know, somebody like Gay Brown does it so well and the best broadcasters do. And I found, you know, a total admiration for those people as soon as I stepped into um, the broadcasting studio because it didn't come it didn't come easy to me. And, you know, I went on to work for Galway Bay FM, a brilliant local radio station. And that's where I learned my craft after I left a university before making the move up to Dublin. And once I was bitten by that bug, I mean, there really was no going back for me. And it's a different type of storytelling as well. Mm -hmm. Do you know, like I've done um, pieces for all sorts of mediums, online, print, TV, you know, I've taken part in various um, true crime documentaries over the years. But I think there's a certain skill to telling a story through the medium of radio that really excites me. And I think I'd really miss if I ever left that space. You know, the great Johnny Lyons, who I'm sure you're very familiar with, Ashley, yeah. um, the, the late Johnny Lyons, sadly, he was taken from this world far too soon. But he was the head of sport when when I moved to Dublin um, to work with um, 98 FM. I also worked there a, a few years ago. That's where I got my start in Dublin. And one thing that Johnny told me that is, again, like one of those pieces of advice that I picked up down through the years and um, that's really stuck with me is that, you know, if you're a broadcast journalist and you're reporting live from a sporting event or any event, uh, you know, a, a news story, you, you should prove that you're there. And I thought that was really interesting, mm -hmm. you know, give the listeners something that they could only get from being there. You know, paint that picture with your words. And as naff as that might sound, that's a really, really um, exciting skill to do that effortlessly to bring a person on that journey with you, to bring them to that event. You know, you're always told like Radio 101 is like, think of one person standing by their radio and take them to where you are. You know, that's the difference between radio and all of the other mediums. Like, and, and that's the reason, like Irish people are great storytellers and Irish people love good stories. And that's why it's no surprise to me that radio is more popular than ever in Ireland. And when you look at the, you know, the other choices out there, we're spoiled for choice when it comes to how we engage with um, our content. But radio is still holding its own. People like Johnny Lyons, I learned from him as well when I was in 98. I remember when I started out, uh, you said there that putting a microphone in front of a young journalist can be like putting a shotgun in their face. And I remember going into the news studio to do my first bulletin and just the voice just went from me. 
you know, and I just froze. And I remember Tina Gates pulling Johnny aside and saying, can you have a chat with Ashling? And he kind of came in and he says, Ashling, you're a great character. What's happening to you in front of the mic? Well, what's, you know, really big, louder than, larger than life kind of character. And worked with me and took the time to really say, do you know what? This is just a conversation. Forget about the microphone. Think about that one person sitting at home or sitting in the car who might not want to hear the news, but actually needs to know the information you're trying to get across for their day to day lives. So they know what's coming up in the budget or they know what the Ryan report has said today or whatever story it may have been. People like that, I think, are the unsung heroes of broadcasting in Ireland. I know I've been very lucky and I'm sure you are the same to have had people mentor me through my career to take that time out and to give you just, you know, a few minutes of extra coaching or an extra bit of time to really help you develop your voice for broadcasting. Yeah, I totally agree. And you mentioned Tina Gates, who... I would certainly have a soft spot for too because Tina gave me uh, an opportunity um, at 98 FM. She was ahead of news at the time. Work for me had dried up in Galway, you know, Galway Bay FM. And another mentor of mine was Bernadette Prendergast, Mm -hmm. uh, head of news at Galway Bay FM. And she was also the um, broadcast module lecturer in NUI Galway where I studied. And, um, you know, she had given me so much work. I went there to do work experience after I finished the master's and it was supposed to be like a three month stint. And she kept me there for, for two years, you know, and, and eventually there was just no more work there for me. And, you know, I did bits and pieces freelance, but I, you know, I realized that I had to, I had to make the move to Dublin. There would just be more opportunities for me up there. And um, I remember dropping Tina, uh, having never met her or spoken to her, I dropped her an email and I just told her what my story was. I told her, you know, what my experience was and while it was limited, I did have a background in, in legal studies. And um, I had done a lot of work down in the courthouse in Galway as a freelance uh, reporter. And Tina emailed me back and it was maybe like half past five in the evening. And um, and she said, can you be in Dublin at six o'clock tomorrow morning? Can you be at the news desk here in 98 FM? And I said, absolutely, I, I'll, I'll see you then. And Tina, Tina said to me, you know, many years after that, she said that that was a test. Do you know, like yeah. if I had put that off, she wasn't interested. She knew that if I was going to be at my desk, you know, 12 hours later, um, you know, traveling up from Galway to be there. Uh, she she knew that I was serious and and she was a great mentor too. Like, you know, 98 FM is a very, is a very uh, busy newsroom and they do an awful lot with less resources than than, than bigger newsrooms. Um, and I learned so, so much from the likes of Tina and Johnny and, and Bernadette and all these amazing people that I met in radio. But there's an awful lot, like one of the key skills, I think, for a broadcast journalist, for a journalist in general, is something that can't actually be taught. And it's that ability to sniff out a story. Do you know, you can't teach that. That's that's innate. You you either yeah. have it or you don't. It's it's in you or it isn't. Um, and, and once you have that skill to sniff out a story, particularly for a broadcaster, you need to be able to tell it. You need to know your audience. And from a broadcasting point of view, you've hit the nail on the head there. It needs to be conversational, you know, and that that's certainly one thing that that I'm constantly working on is that, you know, I cover stories in the courts, some of which can be very complicated. And it's about understanding those stories myself and then breaking them down in a way that's user friendly. You know, I always I always a tool that I find very helpful is that I finish my day's work. I'm going to the pub for a pint with my mate. They've asked me how my day is 
and I'm going to explain to them. They don't have any legal background. They don't have any context. And I'm going to explain to them in, in a way that's understandable and user friendly. And it's very important not to dumb the story down because, you know, Irish listeners are, in, you know, they're intelligent people and they know when something is being dumbed down for them. So that's not what it's about. It's for me, it's removing the legal jargon and just making those stories um, more accessible to people, because that is the beauty of radio. It's so intimate, you know, people driving to work in the morning, you know, driving the kids to school, coming back in the evening time. My own mother, like, you know, pottering around the house, listening to the radio, like, there are listeners. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? So like, I think that's I think that's a really special thing um, about radio. And that was certainly something through the mentors that we've spoken about that um, they would have worked uh, with me on those things, because like I remember when I first started doing live pieces, you know, bulletins um, in Galway Bay FM and Bernadette pulled me aside one day and she said, you know, we're going to take you off air for a little while and we're going to work on you. And and that was hard because, you know, I, everyone just wants to be on air. And then um, if you're told that you're terrified, you'll never get back on. That's the thing. And, and what Bernadette said to me, and, and again, I often slag her about it when I, when I see her, is that she said that I needed to deliver my news bulletins in a way that didn't sound like I was reading poetry. And that was really interesting because, like, you know, you often hear people trying to sound like they're on the BBC. Uh, do you know mm. what I mean? Or they just don't sound natural. They don't sound like themselves delivering these reports. And it's really important that you do, because, you know, if you don't and if the cust if the listener picks up on that, then it breaks down the trust. And if a journalist doesn't have trust with whoever's consuming what they're saying, then it's pointless. So I just needed to find a way to sound more natural and to sound like me, you know, and one of the great things about Irish radio, certainly in the last few years, is that like, you know, there's such a great array of accents. Do you know what I mean? Yes. It's not just the traditional kind of Dublin BBC-esque accent that you might have heard 20, 30 years ago, where everybody is trying to sound the same. You know, people have personalities on, on radio now and certainly, you know, with the company that I work for, we're encouraged to embrace that, um, which is brilliant. Now, Frank, you have become very well known as a national courts correspondent, as you said, working with News Talk and Today FM under uh, Bauer Media now or soon to be Bauer Media if it all goes through. But the... Job of a course correspondent in particular, as he said there, it is incredibly challenging. You're trying to figure out exactly what happened in a court case. Why are these people before a court of law? Trying to make sure that you don't break any court rulings or laws in translating that story to your audience. As he said, doing it at high speed. And some of these cases can be particularly traumatic to listen to, never mind um, for, for the people involved themselves and the, the harrowing things that people go through in these situations. I'm wondering, Frank, are there stories that, no matter how far you've gone in your career, that you'll always come back to, stories that have just stuck with you over the years? Uh, absolutely. Um to a certain degree, I try my very best to leave them at the door um, after I have finished a day in court. I mean, you are 
constantly day in day out um surrounded by doom and gloom and tragedy you know like it it ceases to amaze me the level of violence that mm-hmm. human beings can inflict on one another and the funny thing is like you know you could sit through 4 hours of evidence in court during any given day and Certainly from um, a news bulletin point of view, you're expected to condense that into a 40, 45 second voicer. And then, you know, through the likes of um, The Last Word with Matt Cooper or on the Pat Kenny show on on News Talk, you're given a little bit more time to, you know, um, to flesh out what happened in court. But people are only getting the tip of the iceberg. And, you know, there are cases that are so graphic in their nature that you really have to um, water down your coverage, you know, um, but we still have to sit all, through all of that horror, you know, and I'm often asked, you know, how does that affect me? And, you know, you would really want to have a heart of stone not to be affected by it in some way. But I'm always equally, I'm always surprised when people ask me how I am, because at the end of the day, who cares? You know, the people who really matter are the people that get caught in the crosshair of these evil acts. You know, you look at Anna Kriagel's parents, for example, Geraldine and Patrick, and that's a trial that I would have covered extensively for News Talk and Today FM and for the wider News Talk network day in, day out, bringing that reportage to people. And, you know, you ask me other cases that I that I think about from time to time, and that's certainly one of them. You know, Anna Kriagel was 14 years of age when she was taken from this world by two 13-year-old boys, you know, lured to a derelict farmhouse in, in Lucan and, and subjected to a savage beating, you know, so unnecessary, you know, such a wonderful life snuffed out in the most violent of, of ways. And listeners and readers would only have got the tip of the iceberg of what happened to Anna Kriagel. You know, it, it took the state or the then state pathologist, Professor Mary Cassidy, you know, a couple of hours to go through her report, her post-mortem evidence. Such was the extent of injuries that was um, inflicted on Anna Kriagel. And of course, you know, in the interests of taste and decency and with respect to Anna's parents, you're not going to go through those verbatim, but of course you still have to sit through them. But I'm always minded when people ask me, you know, how that case affected me. You know, I think about that evidence in particular, that post-mortem evidence, you know, as tough as, as it was for me to sit through, Geraldine and Patrick were, were sitting through that evidence too. And for two hours, they were listening to a blow-by-blow account, essentially, of, of what happened to their beloved daughter. So... I get through those cases by thinking about the Geraldine and the Patrick Creasels of this world and thinking about the Anna Creasels of this world, too. And, you know, trying to do their stories justice. Um, you know, I, I, I'm, I'm really passionate about, like, victim stories. And I'm even loath to use the word victim. Mm. You know, I know Anna didn't survive what happened to her, but, but equally she shouldn't just be remembered as the victim of a horrendous crime. You know, you look at um, survivors of abuse that come through the courts, having reported, you know, these vile acts that happened when they were children, maybe 20, 30, 40 years ago, and and giving them a platform to talk about their stories outside afterwards. Uh, Do you know, like, my stories rarely have a happy ending. It's just the nature of of the world that that I work in. But when you see these people stepping onto that platform outside court and telling the world, this is me. 
this doesn't define who I am. You know, this happened to me. This is how I'm dealing with it. And I'm glad to see the person who did this to me getting justice today. Do you know, that's for me, you know, that's what gets me through each of these stories. And there are lots of people out there who don't want that platform. And it's obviously very newsworthy at the moment because up until recently, the Geraldine and Patrick creators of this, of this world were silenced from talking about their daughter. Course, you know, yeah. thankfully, Section 252 of the Children Act has been changed. And you see how important that platform is to people when it's taken away from them. And as a journalist covering these types of stories, you know, what a privilege it is for me to give them that platform. There's a misconception out there that journalists are dogged and they're chasing people down the street looking for comments after these uh, things. That couldn't be further from the truth. You know, we're very respectful. And I often think of, of Anna, you know, I often think of Geraldine and, and Patrick and all of these dreadful cases that I've that I've covered down through the years. And I just hope that I've done their stories uh, at justice and, you know, and, you know, for the likes of Geraldine Patrick, they're never going to get their daughter back. But they have seen justice being served. You know, they've seen the two responsible for taking her life um, being convicted and being handed lengthy sentences for what they did. And that must be of some comfort to them. And, you know, myself and my colleagues sit on the press bench in the Central Criminal Court day in, day out, hearing uh, these stories. And I certainly take some comfort from seeing uh, justice uh, being served. Does it give you hope? Because as you've described your job there and your role in particular as a course correspondent, you would be forgiven for becoming bitter and angry at society. Do cases where you see the perpetrators held to justice, sentenced to jail or whatever their punishment may have may be, does that give you some semblance of hope for the future? Well, like I, like I said earlier, you know, it really does cease to amaze me, you know, the terrible things that people can do to one another, you know, it really is horrendous. And does it give me hope to see these people being brought to justice? Yes, in a sense, because there are plenty of other cases out there, unsolved crimes, you know, mm. plenty of missing people who still don't have their justice. And I see how much it means to the ones that get it. And I see how deeply it affects the ones who are still searching for it. From a personal point of view, what it does for me is, and I know this is going to sound daft and people do raise eyebrows when they hear me say it, you know, it gives me a much greater appreciation of my life and the people in my life, you know, I sit there and I, you know, I listen to victim impact statements and I interviewed a woman recently who lost a son. Um, he was only 11 years of age when her half brother, a man called Patrick Dillon, stabbed him to death uh, down in Limerick in 2019. Brooklyn Colbert was the boy's name. The mother, Sonia Elmer, is a remarkable woman. She's she's a warrior and, and she shared her story with me and thankfully we were able to share with, with with our listeners on on news talk uh, recently after those changes to the law were made and i sit there and i listen to somebody like sonia talking about brooklyn and talking about you know how much brooklyn mentor and how much she misses him and 
you know, I have a little nephew, uh, Jack, who's around the same age as, as Brooklyn. And I have another wee, nephew, wee nephew who was only born back in October. And it gives me a greater appreciation for the people in my life and how lucky I am that they're still in my life and that I haven't gone through that sort of trauma and horror because people like Sonia Elmer and Geraldine and Petri Kriagel, they're handed life sentences too. And there's no par- parole for those types of people. So, you know, um, yeah. my siblings will often, they always know when I'm covering a toughie or when I've had a tough day in court because they'll get a message out of the blue and, and, um, you know, I'll tell them how much they mean to me. I'll tell them how much I love them. I'll tell them how much I can't wait to see them. I haven't seen them since Christmas because of the pandemic and I'm counting down the days until I can go home and and, and see them again. And I can do that, you know. There's so many people out there that, that can't because their loved ones are taken from them in such a, a cruel and, and, and untimely way. So it just goes to show that, you know, People, people say, you know, seize the moment, seize the day, carpe diem, you know, people throw that around a lot, but not many of us do actually seize the day and you just never know when your time is up. And it certainly makes me do things and say things to the people that matter. You know, we're not a great country for talking to one another about our emotions and how we feel about each other. And you don't know what you have until it's gone. There's one case, Ashleen, that really uh, sticks with me and and it really illustrates the point that I'm that I'm trying to make. And it was a woman who lost her husband through a workplace accident. Um, He worked down in the docks in Dublin. And he was crushed by one of those large cranes that you'll see moving around um, the Docklands. And she was given her victim impact statement um, because the company that he worked for was held criminally responsible under health and safety legislation. And she was giving evidence about the life that they had together, you know, um, They didn't have any kids, but they were married for some time. And she spoke about her earliest memories of dancing around the kitchen, you know, like in the early days of their marriage, you know, a young couple madly in love, um, dancing and tricking around the kitchen. And and she spoke about the last time that she spoke to her husband. And it was a row that they had um, the night before. So they'd gone to bed angry and not talking to each other. And she said she woke up the next morning and ordinarily every morning as he was heading off for work, there wasn't a day that went by that he wouldn't give her a kiss to say goodbye. And he didn't that morning because she felt he knew that it wouldn't be welcomed. And he left and she didn't even get a chance to say goodbye. Now, obviously, she didn't know that that was the last time she she'd ever see him. But my God, that really, that that was like a punch to the stomach for me. You know, that was such a powerful illustration of how precious life is and how you never know what's around the corner. So my job and hearing these people's stories certainly puts that into perspective uh, for me. I'm very close to my family anyway, but but certainly this has given me a greater appreciation of of the loved ones in my life. My father died very suddenly in November, but he got sick in 2018 and it was about six months before he was due to retire. And he'd, he'd all my life, 
he had spent it talking about what he was going to do when he retired. He was going to buy a villa on a golf course in Spain and he was going to travel the world and he was going to meet Rory McIlroy and he was going to do this, that and the other. Everything to do with golf, basically, he was going to do. And this was all going to happen when he retired. And he worked, I mean, that man had a year worth of holidays of actual uh, nearly 365 days worth of holidays that he had not taken in his career when he became ill to fall back on and I remember a few months after he got sick he started what he'd had a number of strokes and he wasn't great in his feet so this one night he decided he wanted to go for a walk but he wanted to do it in the dark in case the neighbours saw him and would I go with him so I went up this across the road, there's a little housing estate across from my, my family home place and I figured the footpaths would be safe enough when we got chatting. And he said to me, Ashley, do you know what? If you don't cop yourself on, you're going to spend your entire life working and you're not going to enjoy yourself. I've spent too long working and not enough time enjoying myself. Don't make the same mistake. And I think, Frank, that story, that lady that you spoke of, we don't know. And I know we all say it and we have, I know people who have posters above their beds that say carpe diem and people raise the eyebrows and they take it a bit sarcastically. But we genuinely don't know when our time is. And I think it's something, I think the way you've illustrated it there with, with that family story, like that could be any of us. Mm. Yeah. Um, and it is... It is easier said than done, isn't it? Because mm-hmm. we all live our lives at a million miles an hour. But I know a few years ago, um, my best friend, Dave Fitzpatrick, a, a guy that I've known all my life. Um, and we'd often talked, both of us had worked in the hospitality business um, for years and um, in college and things like that. And we'd often talked about opening our own place. And, you know, it was a conversation that we'd always have over pints and, you know, it was a bit of a pipe dream. And then all of a sudden uh, a unit came up in in Galway, our hometown. And um, David approached me and said, look, this is after becoming available. Like, do you want to come down and have a look? And you know, again, it just still felt like a pipe dream and went down, had a look at this unit. It was derelict. You know, it was a protected structure in need of an awful lot of work. And, you know, David and I decided like, look, let's take a punt. We both had and still have very busy and demanding day jobs, but you only get one life. Yeah. And you can go through that life making excuses And trying to portray them as legitimate reasons for not pursuing your dreams and for not doing the things that you're passionate about and the things that get you up in the morning. You know, I've always wanted to be the master of my own ship. I've always wanted to have my own business. I've always had a grow for hospitality. And this is an amazing experience that David and I have had over the years, you know, we did end up opening our own restaurant. I mean, it broke us in every which way, financially, emotionally, physically. But the moment we opened those doors, you know, we're almost three years open now. And when we opened those doors, like, and sitting down that evening, the two of us, you know, having a beer, everybody gone home, we'd had a busy night. You know, we weren't even talking, we were exhausted. And and all we had keeping us company was the hum of our fridges in the background. That little din that fridges make when nobody's around. And they were our fridges. 
you know, and they'd served our customers on our first night well. And my God, what a special moment that was. And there were so many people who told us it wouldn't work. You know, people by their very nature are adverse to risk. And we had professionals telling us that we were crazy. You know, we had uh, some legal advice that we got before we signed leases. You know, we were told this is madness. You know, leases were taken away from us before. We said, are you sure you want to do this, guys? You know, and of course, that puts the fear of God into you. You know, it really does. But I think David and I both had a vision. And while nobody else really believed in it and worried about us because they cared about us, you know, we knew we were going to execute it. And, you know, if we had failed, would it be the end of the world? Do you know what I mean? You only get one life. And I had so many opportunities to walk away from it. And there were points where I was tempted. And I'll never forget when I fully 100% committed to it. This was a point where there was no turning back. I had a dentist appointment at half past four in Dublin. I was living in Dublin at the time. And um, David rang me and we had been, I suppose, delaying signing contracts because we were still waiting on builders to come back to us to tell us how much it was going to cost. This was a total new <laughs> rebuild, essentially. We had to gut the place. We had asked three builders to come back to us with um, quotes for the job. We only had one at the time and it was astronomical. We simply couldn't afford to pay it. Um, and we were waiting on the other two, but the landlord, in fairness to him, he had been very patient, uh, but had run out of patience and was looking for us to put pen to paper and he was dead right to do so. And David said that we needed to do this by close of business. Um, We still were waiting on two bids to come through. So in my mind, we didn't have all of the information to make an informed decision. Mm -hmm. And as a journalist and you do your due diligence and, you know, you don't fly by the seat of your pants. So it flew against everything that I believe in to make a decision without having all of the information. And at the time, my dad was um, quite ill and and sadly he passed away a couple of months later. And um, I was I said to David, I said, look, I'm outside the dentist. I'm going to have to go in here. I'll give you a call before close of business with my decision. And I was lying there and, you know, the dentist could have been taken out every tooth in my head and I wouldn't have noticed because my mind was elsewhere. And I was thinking, like, look at my dad, you know, he hasn't got long left for this world. And I don't want to be on my deathbed, you know, hopefully many years later with any regrets, wondering, you know, what if. And I called David back with minutes to go before a close of business. And I said, let's do it. And we worked our asses off. And, you know, the Belfast rape trial, which I'm sure you and your listeners are very familiar with, that came calling, you know, um, in the middle of the build. And I was, you know, living uh, in Belfast, living in that story for three full months while there was a build going on in Galway that was also taking uh, my attention. So on the face of it, it was crazy. You know, it shouldn't have worked. But if you believe in something, You know, and if you want to make it work, you will make it work. And if you don't, I mean, you know, what what have you got to lose? Uh, You know, like that that image of what that woman said, you know, about her husband and just never knowing when your day is up and, you know, having no regrets when it is like um, I I try as as best I can uh, to live my life like that. 
Well, Frank Graney, thank you so much for your time today. I'm going to ask you the question I ask all my guests. What does storytelling mean to you? Storytelling means so much to me. I really don't think I could sum it up in one sentence. For a start, it's my livelihood. I tell stories for a living. But I don't just tell my story. In fact, my whole world revolves around telling other people's stories. And people share their memories with me in very difficult circumstances. And for them to do that, they need to trust that I will be a good custodian of those memories. And that's for me, that's that's why I do what I do, you know. People who are going through traumatic experience, having lost a loved one through an act of violence, knowing that they never get them back and seeing the pain on their face when they're talking about it and reliving those experiences and trusting me to tell their story. Like that's a privilege and it's an honour. You know, storytelling has given me everything. But that is the most important thing for me. It's telling other people's stories and and doing it in a way I pour over these things. You know, I lose sleep over them. And the feedback, when you get that feedback and you say that you've made a difference in somebody's life and, you know, it reminds me of, of Bernie's words of wisdom when she gave that rousing speech on the first day of that evening course I did in journalism all those years ago. You know, there is the door if you're looking for fame and fortune. But if you stick with this, you'll find riches, you know, beyond your wildest dreams. And I think that's what she meant. Well, Frank Graney, thank you so much for joining us on Ireland Creates. It's been an absolute pleasure. Likewise, Ashling. Thanks so much for having me. It's been a pleasure. Thanks again to Frank for being so generous with his time. I hope you enjoyed listening to our chat. There are plenty more interesting stories in our back catalogue. You can find out more about the podcast on IrelandCreates.com. Thanks to Claire Creative for our podcast artwork and Peter Baxter at createschool.ie for our theme tune. If you'd like help with finding clarity in your communications, I can be contacted through ashlingorourke.com and that's A-I-S-L-I-N-G-O-R-O-U-R-K-E.com. Please don't hesitate to get in touch. But for now, remember, a good story is 22 times more likely to connect with your target audience. I hope you have a great week. Until next time, I'm Ashling O'Rourke and I want to encourage you to share your story. 